Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Denkowski. Thanks for joining us. Over the next two weeks, young climate activists are leading strikes around the world, demanding politicians take action. The strikes will bookend the UN Climate Emergency Summit. While youth climate activism is not a new phenomenon, the dire warnings about inaction give today's movement a heightened sense of urgency. Boston's Gina McCarthy, the former head of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, sat down with two young local climate leaders to talk about what drives them and the challenges they face. My name's Audrey. I use she, her pronouns. I'm 18 years old. I'm from Watertown, and I just graduated high school. My name is Saya Ameli Hajebi. I'm 17, go to Brookline High School. And I am Jean McCarthy, and it's none of your business how old I am. <laughs> but, but I'm twice as old as probably the two of them put together. So there we are. Who wants to start? Um, I just, I really, really wanted to ask you kind of what got you started on the path to um, be into climate policy. And I'm really wondering if you did any activism like Audrey and myself here. Well, Saya, I think I started on this path quite a while ago, and it was basically back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I really was interested in all of the pollution that was happening. I was worried about all of the paper that was being thrown out the window. I was worried about lead paint. I was worried about things you could see and feel and touch. You know, we were always driving our parents crazy to get them to pay attention. And I expect that you have the same journey. Uh, you know, you're trying to drive me and others of my age crazy, and you should, because we have to change our thinking. And so I'm kind of interested in why climate change has become such a big part of your agenda, a big motivator. I mean, you mentioned pollution, and actually, uh, my family moved here from Iran about eight years ago. And so I lived in one of the most polluted cities of the world, Tehran. And it only the the kind of moment that that I finally saw that difference was when I stepped off the plane at Logan Airport in Boston and I looked up and the sky was actually blue. So I want to kind of I want to channel that every time that I talk to other people my age and I want to channel that when I talk to kind of the greater population of people to to show just how close and personal these climate change issues are. They're right here. They're right next to us. It's just sometimes we don't see them. That is extraordinary. Audrey? Yeah. I think for a lot of kids our age, uh, we've just kind of always grown up, like, knowing about global warming, knowing about climate change. But I didn't really understand the urgency of this issue until my sophomore year of high school when I'm writing this research project, and I just had this moment of, oh my gosh, climate change impacts everything that I know. And this has really pushed me towards taking action. I can't tell you how much it sparks energy to have young people engaged in these issues because it just reminds us of the sort of madras t-shirts and tie-dyed t-shirts and <laughs> bell-bottoms we used to wear when we were marching in the streets. 
Do you get a lot of challenges about why are you doing this? Why aren't you in school? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, talking with my grandfather about climate change and him just not understanding in any way that the urgency of this crisis. Um, so I am currently on a gap year. Um, I took a gap year specifically because I wanted to work with Sunrise Movement. And he just couldn't understand that. He thought that I or his understanding of how I'm using my time is kind of that I'm wasting my time, that I need to be going to college right now. He just doesn't get it. Yeah. So that's definitely been challenging. But the important thing is you still love your grandfather, right? Yes, I do. Um, and for me, that's definitely been understanding like a both and that he is both in relative denial of climate change and he's my grandfather and I love him a lot. So um, He loves you as well, I'm sure. So probably in the back of his mind, he's dwelling on why this is such a big deal to you. And I think that's a good thing. One of the things I've really been bothered by is sort of an inability to make climate change part of everyday conversation. We have to, you know, not treat this like it's something that shouldn't be talked about as opposed to something that ought to influence every choice in our lives. So, Gina, how do you stay optimistic? Yeah, you can't be unrealistic about the challenge, but you have to be hopeful for the future. And right now, it's very difficult for me because I ran the environmental agency uh, in Washington, D.C., EPA, and a lot of what we did during the Obama administration is now being undone or attempted to be undone by this administration. So you really got to just take a deep breath and say, you know, what we did was right. What we did followed the science, and we're going to win in the end. You know, if, have you ever hung around with somebody who is just always crotchety? You just <laughs> want to run the other direction, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you work in government and you're trying to motivate people, I'm not trying to scare them. I'm trying to embrace them. I'm trying to get them to think about the challenge in their viewpoint. We've kind of reached a tipping point. Now where there's enough people that, that know this is an issue and are very motivated and have felt the impact in their own lives, that, that they want to act. One of the things that I appreciate the most about the Green New Deal it is uh, a resolution that really uplifts uh, people on the front lines of poverty and pollution um, and is really looking to address the social wrongs that have been going on so much in our country. Um, and I guess I'm just kind of curious, what uh, do you believe are the biggest obstacles to achieving the goals of the Green New Deal? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a really good question. I think p most people see it as being daunting because it tries to do so many things at once. But honestly, I'm so excited that it's part of the conversation. And I don't believe it would be if it wasn't for the Sayas and the Audreys of the world. So uh, I want to make sure that anybody your age uh, recognizes that when an administration like this may not be paying attention, it's not the end of the discussion. It's not the end of your opportunity to make progress, right? Yeah, yeah. we're going to stay super hopeful. Yeah. I am I'm, hopeful. I'm just getting chills running down my back. So if anybody tells you you're wasting your time, Audrey or Saya, you are not wasting your time. You're doing our business. You're working in a democratic process, and you're making this country work better. And I am so proud of you. Thank you. That was Gina McCarthy, former head of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency along with Saya Ameli Hijebi and Audrey Lynn. The story was produced by WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Senna Wazer is also a climate activist who helped organize a strike this week. She's a 15-year-old student at the University of Connecticut, and she spoke with Connecticut Public Radio's Lucy Nalpathanchel about how she became an activist. 
Yeah, so for me, it actually started when I was five. Um, my parents read me a story about a whale named Ibis. And in the story, Ibis got caught in a fishing net, but she was very lucky and she got rescued. And at that time, I loved that story. So I asked my parents to read me the author's note. And the author's note said that most whales don't get freed. They die. Mm -hmm. And I was really upset by that. So I started crying and whining. Um, and I did that for three days until my dad like couldn't take it anymore <laughs> and said, well, if you don't like something, then do something about it. Wazer says at first she focused on protecting whales before shifting her attention to climate change. Today, she says she struggles with the fact that some people and some leaders deny that climate change is happening. That's really hard for me to see, knowing that they're denying something that could destroy my future. That is um, really hard, but it also definitely motivates me to work harder and to try and mobilize more young people so that we can work together and really fight this and make sure that we have leaders um, who, who are going to take action on climate change because it's so influential for our lives. Wazer says leaders in Connecticut need to take bigger and bolder steps. Yeah, so we're asking one of our like our main demand is that the governor declare a climate emergency for Connecticut. Um, and then under that demand, we have all these other things that we're asking. Um, but some of the like the really important ones are asking that Connecticut expand energy efficiency programs um, because that will that's something that will help everybody in the state of Connecticut. Um, we also want to ensure that all communities and public school kids um, have access to climate education. Um, and I think that this is especially important for kids because they're growing up with climate change. Um, and then we also have other things that we're asking, like Connecticut ends uh, climate emitting pollutions on or before December 31st of 2030. Um, and that Connecticut cease permitting new or expanding um, fossil fuel infrastructure. That was 15-year-old Senna Wazer on the show Where We Live. Cutting emissions can mean cutting energy usage. And in parts of New England, there's an energy efficiency program that is gaining traction. Now, usually programs like these are reserved for homeowners, while renters are left paying energy bills that are higher than they'd like. But an innovative system created by two Vermonters is helping renters and people with lower incomes finance energy efficiency upgrades. As John Kalish reports, decades in, climate change is finally helping to fuel interest in their system. Paul Sillo started working in the energy efficiency field in the late 1970s. He left his job with the Vermont State Energy Office to form a consulting business that did energy audits, but his consulting career was short-lived. We basically got tired of crawling through buildings and running calculations on individual buildings and started looking for opportunities to design programs that utilities would offer their customers. Sillo lives in Hardwick, Vermont. His partner, Harlan Lockman, runs the business out of his home in Colchester, Vermont. It's been proven that you can work with renters. It's been proven that you can work with people of no means and their lives are made better. The system they came up with is called PAYS, which stands for Pay As You Save. It uses the savings realized in lower utility bills to finance energy conservation measures such as the installation of heat pumps and solar hot water heaters. This is the corporate headquarters. Downstairs in the dungeon is the corporate headquarters for the Energy Efficiency Institute. Tenants like pays because it lowers their utility bills. Landlords like pays because they don't pay for property upgrades. Municipalities like pays because it allows them to fund energy conservation projects without having to go to voters for bond approval. 
Lockman estimates that the pays system is responsible for $35 million in energy efficiency projects in the last 20 years. In New Hampshire, this has meant the installation of energy-efficient street lighting, weatherizing homes, and the replacement of an HVAC system in a commercial building. In drought-stricken California, Pays was used for the installation of water-conserving toilets. And in Roanoke, one of the poorest areas of North Carolina, a variety of energy conservation measures were implemented using Pays. To date, we have done over 400 upgrades using the program and invested about $2.5 million. We're averaging around $7,500 per location. Curtis Wynn is the CEO of the Roanoke Electric Cooperative. The upgrades range from insulating attics to replacing a home's entire HVAC system. Wynn has been telling other rural electric co-ops the pay system is a game changer. We've been telling people it is something that they should look at for themselves. Obviously, we believe that it is something that works based on our own experience here at Roanoke. In buildings that are occupied by renters, both the tenant and landlord have to agree to participate in pays. Paul Sillo says in areas where utilities offer pays, the customer acceptance rates are much higher than the acceptance rates for utility rebate and loan programs. We get customer acceptance rates of 50, 75, even 90 percent, and that's unheard of in energy efficiency. Sillow's partner Harlan Lockman says that since Pays was first described in 1999, the system has been replicated 18 times in eight states. Lockman admits he expected more utilities to embrace the Pays system. If anything, Paul and I were shocked that some of the efforts that we came up with didn't change the world. We thought we were going to get rich, and we thought we were going to have every state in the union by this time. But Pays is poised to proliferate. The Tennessee Valley Authority's approval of the Pays system means 150-plus local utilities in seven states are now free to implement it. And a nonprofit that encourages investment in the clean energy economy is advocating the use of Pays to replace diesel-powered buses with electric buses. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Kalish. Energy efficiency, wind and solar can all help to cut rising greenhouse gas emissions, but there is another carbon-free energy source that is strong, steady, and available. WBUR's Bruce Gellerman reports on the future of nuclear power. Future? In Massachusetts, nuclear power is history. The state's last nuclear power plant has shut down after nearly 50 years. The Pilgrim nuclear plant in Plymouth provided enough The owners power of Pilgrim pulled the plug last spring. Maintaining the aging plant was too expensive and it couldn't compete against cheap natural gas. Nuclear opponent Mary Lampert, founder of Pilgrim Watch, says, good riddance. I'm not going to break out the champagne because I'm focused on the next chapter. Nuclear energy may be dead in Massachusetts, but Lampert is worried Pilgrim's highly radioactive waste will never be permanently buried off-site. 
She says the nuclear plant, once rated the worst in the nation by regulators, was unsafe, unreliable, and its power wasn't needed. We have plenty. Nuclear power has had its day. We are transitioning to a different type of electric economy. Lampert is right. We do have plenty of power, but from a climate change perspective, it's the wrong kind. Half of New England's electricity comes from burning climate-disrupting natural gas. That's a threefold increase in just 18 years. For all its problems, radioactive waste, plant safety, and cost, Pilgrim produced most of the carbon-free, climate-friendly electricity generated in Massachusetts, more than solar, wind, and hydro combined. The closing of Pilgrim Nuclear is part of a national trend, and some say that's a problem. Nuclear power plants produce about 50% of our carbon-free electricity. Ken Kimmel is president of Cambridge-based Union of Concerned Scientists. A 2018 study by the Nuclear Watchdog Group found a third of the nation's remaining 97 nuclear plants are in financial distress or could close prematurely. That's a lot of our carbon-free power. And if we allow those plants that are operated safely to be shut down for economic reasons, and if those plants are replaced by natural gas, it makes decarbonizing our electric sector much, much, much harder. The U.S. produces more electricity from nuclear than any other nation. 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear power. Like it or not, says Ken Kimmel, the existential threat of climate change means we can't afford to lose safe nuclear plants before there are carbon-free alternatives. This is a short-term problem about not allowing these nuclear plants to close prematurely while we're building the renewable energy future. But bailing out financially troubled nuclear plants is expensive. It's estimated the cost to ratepayers to bail out reactors in five states that recently threatened to shut down could exceed $15 billion. Two of those reactors are at the Millstone Nuclear Power Station in Connecticut. They generate 98% of the state's carbon-free power. If Millstone had closed, it would have left just one nuclear reactor operating in New England, Seabrook. The Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire has had a long and controversial history. There were supposed to be two reactors built in the 1980s. But construction cost estimates for the second reactor soared tenfold. We went after the plant on the grounds that it really was ridiculously expensive. Doug Foy, former president and CEO of the Conservation Law Foundation, led the fight against the second Seabrook reactor in court. We eventually won that case, and the plant was canceled. The company went bankrupt trying to build it, which we had also predicted. Just one reactor was built at Seabrook. It's still the largest single generator in New England. Its carbon-free operation is equal to taking 700,000 cars off the road. Today, instead of trying to shut it down... Doug Foy says the New Hampshire nuke needs to remain up and running. In the early 80s, climate change wasn't on anyone's radar, really. As we've learned more and more about its implications and the risks, I think all the cards have to be on the table. All the cards, including what's the future of nuclear power. In the mid-1970s and 80s, the future of nuclear power was booming. Worldwide, a reactor went online every 17 days. But over the last quarter of a century, just one nuclear power plant has been licensed in the United States. The technology, too controversial. Construction, too expensive. The cost of building two new reactors in Georgia has skyrocketed from $14 billion to $28 billion. And despite taxpayer loan guarantees, they're years behind schedule. 
This isn't an energy future you can bank on, says Paul Hibbard, former chairman of Massachusetts Department of Utilities. I think there's a lot of resistance amongst investors at this point in time to invest in new nuclear capacity because it's really not economic compared to the alternative. Hibbard, now with Boston-based Analysis Group, a global economic consulting firm, says in more and more places, electricity generated by wind and solar is cheaper than nuclear. So until the fundamental economics of nuclear constructing and operating a new nuclear plant changes, then I don't see a lot happening other than investments to maintain and to safely operate the existing nuclear assets. But MIT professor Jacopo Bongiorno says... In a climate-changing world, we can't afford not to build new nuclear power plants. Nuclear still has to play a big role, and that is because if you exclude nuclear, what are you left with? Bongiorno, head of MIT's Center for Advanced Nuclear Energy Systems, led a recent campus-wide study on the future of nuclear energy. Our analysis shows that the most effective and, frankly, least-cost path towards decarbonizing our economy includes nuclear energy or another low-carbon energy source available on demand. Renewables aren't. You can't control when the sun shines or the wind blows. You can't store their energy in batteries, and the price for large-scale storage has been falling dramatically, but it's still expensive. So MIT professor Jacopo Bongiorno argues we will need new nuclear power, and a lot of it, to fuel our low-carbon future. You want to have as many shots on goal as possible. You don't want to lock yourself into a only one path in this case would be only just renewables plus storage because if anything in that path fails you don't have an alternative solution today if nuclear power has a future the new money is betting on smaller cheaper modular reactors supposedly safer mini nukes that can be mass produced by the thousands in factories and shipyards and put to use far and wide in a climate changing world for the new england news collaborative i'm bruce gellerman These stories are all part of Covering Climate Now, a week-long global initiative of more than 250 news outlets. Coming up, scientists walk the beach of the Connecticut River searching for an endangered killer beetle. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Earlier this summer, I went on a journey to find an elusive beetle on the banks of the Connecticut River. The Puritan tiger beetle has been called the most endangered species in New England, and I met up with a team of researchers who are trying to save it. Now, the beetle used to be found up and down this river, but climate change, dam construction, tidal flooding, and other ecosystem changes have reduced its range to just one small patch of sandy soil. Researchers don't think the beetle will survive. Its numbers are low and its habitat is fragmented. So last year, they went in search of suitable patches of habitat, small beaches along the banks of the river where the beetle could thrive. Then last fall, they planted hundreds of beetle larvae on a few of those beaches with the hopes of finding adults this year. If they're successful, they'll know that their years-long multi-state research project has done what it set out to do, 
find a way to keep this species alive. After a rough ride upstream, we landed on an island, the kind of place where party boaters stop to party. Oh man, yeah, watch the broken glass. Yeah. As two keen-eyed beetle spotters and science reporter Patrick Scahill went out looking for signs of Puritan tiger beetles, I sat down on a driftwood log with the lead scientists on the project. My name is Roger Gwizdowski. I'm the principal investigator of the Puritan Tiger Beetle Recovery Project out of the Silvio Oconte National Wildlife Refuge. My name is Laura Saucier. I'm a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Where exactly are we right now? We are on an undisclosed island in the southern Connecticut River. We're sitting right on the, the small patch of habitat we created to reintroduce um, over 300 lab-reared larvae to the site last year. It's of concern because we really only have one population of the species left in New England. So is it considered an endangered species? It's considered an endangered species by the states. Federally, it's a threatened species. Um, it's currently under review about its status. Most of us that work on it seems that we think it probably will become endangered as a, an official status, but it's currently threatened. What exactly is a tiger beetle? What would differentiate it from other types of beetles? <laughs> it's viciousness. Um, these, uh, so they're called tiger beetles because they're relatively solitary hunters and they are vicious predators, both as larvae and as adults. Um, so they have very stout bodies, long legs, big eyes, huge jaws, and they'll look for their prey at a distance, run right into it, slice into the body walls with their giant jaws, uh, incapacitate their prey so they're just immobile, and then eat them while they're alive. So a tiger beetle is vicious. <laughs> how could a thing so vicious, um, so clearly good at getting food, how, how could it become so, so endangered? They're small. Um, so they're vicious for their size. You know, they're, they're about uh, a little less than half an inch long. And they seem to have very restrictive habitat requirements, at least here in New England. Um, so even though it's a, it's a small thing, it's the top predator in its environment here. It's part of a much larger ecosystem. What is it that, that Puritan tiger beetles eat, and is that one of the things that you're looking for, the, the appropriate prey for this species? Well, having built them up to be so vicious, they do, in fact, eat anything they can catch. And so that's mostly something that's about the same size that they are or smaller. Um, and that's the prevailing, uh, I think, thought for most tiger beetle species. But when we've got situations where we've got rare populations like the Puritan tiger beetle, uh, and they're only found in these restricted, restricted places, that forms our questions about, you know, well, what, are, what exactly are they eating or what could they be eating? And it could be that there's something that's present on those few sites that's not on the others. And they're so small and they're in such a remote place, we just haven't, we're st we, we've, we've developed tools to start to look carefully. In a place like Connecticut that's very uh, populated, that has a whole lot of pressure from humans, is, is it just harder to find connected habitat for, for species like these? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, humans are, we are all part of our environment, and and I'm not saying that humans don't belong where we are, but um, we certainly modify our environment at a quicker pace than I think many species can keep up with. And I think that that may be the case with this species. You know, the 1950s, the floods that happened, you know, dams were built higher up. Uh, in the watersheds, which, you know, you have changes in flow regime there. You have changes in, in uh, sediments that are being washed downstream and replenishing these, these areas. Things, we change our environment very quickly. When students ask this question, I often launch and ask them if they know what a metapopulation is. 
Right. And, and, and when, they, when they don't, I get electrically excited because they say it's, such a, it's so quick and so simple and so important. And, and the idea is, you know, if you have one population, it's just one, one group. They're isolated. But if you have a metapopulation, this is a population of populations. And they're spread across space and time so that, you know, as you might imagine, any one year, it's a little drier, it's a little wetter, things are better. And uh, so some populations will, will go down in numbers, some populations will go up in numbers. But when you spread that across a really large place, um, you know, like the like the Connecticut River uh, drainage, you know that's that's a lot of um, that's a lot of populations across space and time. So you know, if you get a storm in southern Connecticut and it wipes out a few populations down there, that's not a problem because beetles from up north will eventually move down to colonize that. And by eventually, I usually mean on fifty hundred year timescales. Um, and so the central problem we have now is that there's no. Uh, possibility for connectivity amid, even if we created new habitats upstream, and I think the fate of the Puritan tiger beetle is to is to be is to live in a human-mediated meta metapopulation. Is the long-term goal to create the type of connectivity that allows a species like this to live up and down the river and and create that metapopulation, or is the long-term goal really just to sustain these smaller populations that you're helping to create, because that's at this point the best we can do? The wonderful longer-term goal would be yes, we have enough healthy river habitat, you know, up and down the river that would allow for free connectivity or free movement of not just Puritan tiger beetles, but all the species that are living in these habitats. Um, but I think practically, like I mentioned, I think we're going to end up, the, our best case scenario that I can imagine is a number of, of stable, but, but geographically very isolated populations. So this is always a, a hard question for people who've, who've devoted a lot of their time in research to something, but why does this matter to, to me or to somebody who's listening to this who frankly thinks that there's a, enough beetles in the world and, and if this one beetle were to go away, it wouldn't really, wouldn't really matter all that much. What do, what, what do you tell those people? Well, well matter to who? I think, um, I, I don't know, I, I, take, I think I, I take a very practical view. I think mo when most folks ask me the question, you know, what will it matter? I'll say, will it matter to who? Will it matter to us? And, and my answer immediately is no, because it's gone extinct for most of the river and it hasn't mattered in a way that we've noticed. On the other hand, you know, most of life on Earth we don't know very much about. And so, you know, the idea that, that because we don't know about something means it's not important, I think is a powerfully naive concept. My opinion is always, yeah, I think it's very um, egotistical for us to think that we know what the ramifications are for, for losing species, losing our biological diversity here in Connecticut. I think it's worthy of protection. It's a beautiful animal. And certainly there are steps that we can do. It's not, it's not something where we can just throw our hands up in the air and go, I don't know what we can do. Well, we know what we can do. We can, we can study the animal. We can find habitat patches that are appropriate quality. We can do our best to try and get those animals to there. Um, there are very practical, common sense things that we can do to try and, and keep this animal here. Is there, a, is there an argument that, that you make if you're, if you're searching for funding or if you're talking to someone you know, at, at, at the state who wonders, you know, should we be spending all this, this time or money trying to save this particular beetle? Is there something that you say that says, yeah, this is, an, this is a species that is indicative of something or this is a species that's incredibly important to the ecosystem? I mean, what's the pitch? The pitch is they're part of a healthy river. I mean, wherever we see Puritan tiger beetles, we see a whole suite of species that were, were native, they're healthy, they're abundant. Um, and I think for, the, for the, the audience, the individual that can handle the existential shock, I will stare them in the eyes pleasantly and I will say, well, what good are you? 
<laughs> you're a lot of fun to bring to parties. <laughs> um, I'd be a blast. The, uh, yeah, I think it's, an, it's a great question. When people, I, I, I like when people ask. And I don't because it's, it's that values-based question that um, sometimes it's hard to find that thread that will connect uh, a small beetle that lives on a beach on the Connecticut River to people's everyday lives. It, 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 it's hard to draw that, but I feel very strongly that it's, that it's important. We're all rallying behind this one beetle. We're working on science. We're trying to save a species, trying to keep the habitat healthy. just want to break out into Kumbaya right now. And it's and you were showing me pictures before. It's a it's a beautiful insect. It's a beautiful little thing. I think so. I think it's gorgeous. Describe what it looks like. <laughs> um, it is a bronzy colored beetle, about a half an inch or so, and has beautiful white decorations, for better word, on on its wings. Gorgeous. Would you like to go find some? If we look off in the distance, Chris and Neil are are just finishing their survey, so we won't disturb them. But if we head off, they'll show us some. Yeah, but we do need help with an ID here. Oh, man. All right. That is cool. That is cool. Take a leg or two. Oh, I got him. Got it? Got him. That is... That is fantastic. I wish I knew if this were really ours. I expect it is, right? That is fantastic. So, I should describe. So, Chris Davis has just handed me an adult female Puritan tiger beetle. Um, it's, it's the one he found in the recent survey, and we are all fairly certain that this beetle was with us here on the beach last year, has spent the winter as a larvae, um, has pupated this spring, and now has emerged as an adult. And you can see her here. She is not happy that she's between my fingers. She's biting. She's using her jaws to bite into my skin. She is puking up a bit of defensive uh, liquid that they, they regurgitate. Um, so we're only going to hold on to her for another moment or so. And then what do you do? Do you just release her? We'll just release her. We'll set her right down in the sand. She'll either run or fly away the moment we let her go, and then she'll be on her beetly way. So I'm going to let her go. I'm just going to bring her down to the sand, set her down, and I think she's still biting my finger. She really wants to go. There she goes. She's going to sit on my finger for just a moment, kind of get her bearings. Oh, she's cleaning her antenna, and there she goes. She just run off my hand, and she's flown off. This is a definite measure of success. It is a, about as small a measure as we could ask, but this is the, as far as we know, the, the first reintroduced uh, tiger beetle which successfully pupated on a site. That was delightful. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> so you're very happy about this. Absolutely. You know, this is, it's, it's one small... Um, one small mark that's that's part of you know a lot of efforts uh, behind that beetle is a team of at least 30 people uh, state and federal wildlife biologists students academics uh, volunteers artists who have all been helping this project for the last few years to get these beetles on the beach we heard from researchers roger gwizdowski and laura saucier if you want to see pictures of our beetle hunt go to nextnewengland.org Coming up, the long-lost local grain economy sees a revival. It's next. We found one. We found <laughs> one.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. Organic dairy farmers in Vermont say there's milk in their market that's not actually organic. They say large-scale producers are getting away with this because industry standards are inconsistently enforced. The farmers are asking Congress to help close regulatory loopholes they say give large farms in the West and Midwest a big advantage. VPR's John Dillon has more. On Stony Pond Farm in Fairfield, young Jersey heifers do their young heifer thing, looking cute as they chew their cuds or graze in the shin-high grass. Farmer Tyler Webb is giving a tour of the operation, which he runs with his wife, Melanie. He says these animals were born here and raised on pasture grown without pesticides or chemical fertilizers, just as the organic standards require. That's a big investment in time and money. It could take really to get a, a, a calf to a point where she's bred and becomes a cow, or even to get to about this point, it would cost a farmer about $1,000. But there's a payoff in the form of a milk check that, despite some declines, is fatter than ones paid to conventional farmers. Webb says the price he earns from the Organic Valley Co-op allows his family to invest in his growing operation and, by extension, in the local community. It was this sustainable pay price that allowed us to, what I would guess amongst all of uh, my farming friends and colleagues here, would agree that if a farmer earns a dollar, or someone gives a farmer a dollar, we're going to spend a dollar twenty-five of that here in our local economy. Organic standards cover many facets of the farm operation, from feed to pasture to the use of medication like antibiotics. Yet organic advocates say some farmers in the West and Midwest are exploiting two loopholes. One is a rule that requires animals to graze most of their time on pasture, the other is called the origin of livestock rule. It says that a farmer's herd must be raised organically once it's transitioned to organic methods. The intent of the origin rule can be evaded, however, when farmers cull their herds rapidly and replace their livestock with those raised using conventional feed and medical treatment, which costs much less. Adam Worthison of Organic Valley says these large operations can save $600 to $1,000 for each cow. That's per animal. And if you're on an operation that's culling quickly, you can see you would have quite a bit of cost advantage. The pasture standard is also ignored, organic advocates say. They point to one mega 15,000 cow farm that supplies the organic milk sold under Walmart's house brand. A 2017 investigation by the Washington Post showed that this Colorado farm is a virtual feedlot with just a few hundred cows outside at a time. By contrast, all of Jersey's on Stony Pond Farm are on pasture until November under a rotational grazing plan that allows the cows manure to feed the soil and the grass to quickly regenerate. Webb says it's part of a system that keeps the animals and the soil healthy. Managing like a, a functioning working landscape and that was our goal and, and developing this partnership, this relationship that ruminants and herbivores have with grasslands is really quite powerful. So the Vermont Organic Farmers and their co-op want Congress to press for stricter enforcement of the standards before Vermont farms are squeezed even more by these large farm operations out west. 
John Cleary is New England coordinator for Organic Valley. On the organic side, there still is you know, quite an opportunity for farmers to grow, looking towards the future, but a lot of it hinges on keeping the standards strong, right? And how do we continually improve history? And don't let some of the big corporate farms steal the standards. That last voice belongs to Senator Patrick Leahy, a longtime supporter of organic farming. It's clear Leahy, who authored the 1990 law that established the federal organic program, doesn't need much convincing. We have the law. We have to enforce the law. And we should not be writing regulations that allow huge loopholes. But here's the problem. While the organic standards are established by federal law, local and state organizations actually do the certifying of organic farms. And the certifiers are not always consistent in how they interpret the standards, says Adam Wortheson of Organic Valley. Some certifiers allow frequent culling of herds and replacing them with stock that were not always raised according to organic methods. You have a whole set of certifiers that have two different interpretations of what the federal regulations provide. Congress needs to provide clarity. In Vermont, almost all those farmers and everyone that we know follows sort of the interpretation that we as Organic Valley understand. Once you transition, then all your animals shall be organic from last third of gestation then on. A difference from that would put all Vermont farmers at a competitive disadvantage. Leahy tells the crowd gathered at Stony Pond Farm that he'll use the upcoming budget negotiations with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to press their case. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. The local food movement has made it easier to find fresh veggies and fruit that's farmed nearby. And of course, there's that local milk and cheese. But grains, not so much. Like the dairy industry we just heard about, big industrial farms in the Midwest give us most of the flour we use here in New England. That's changing, though, as farmers, millers, and chefs rally to reinvent a lost regional grain economy. WBUR's Andrea Shea starts out in a kitchen to find out more. Chef Michael Morway flips a yellow square-shaped chunk of cornbread in a pan sizzling with melted butter. He says the bread recipe is standard, but the cornmeal is not. This is the eight-row corn. You can see all the little bits in it. Blue, red, orange. At the Trillium Brewery restaurant in Boston, Morway serves his color-flecked bread with local cheese, cured meat, and seasonal fruit. The eight-row cornmeal is from around here, too. The chef first tasted it about six years ago, and it blew his mind. It tastes like corn, number one, which cornmeal doesn't taste like corn if you buy it at Stop and Shop. It's more savory, like you're eating a cob of corn. It's, it's bizarre. Native Americans grew this ancient eight-row corn strain for centuries before the pilgrims arrived. Morway started using organic heritage meal for bread and polenta at his former restaurant in Plymouth. He laments how mass production mills strip flavor, fat, and nutrients from grains, including GMO corn, grown in the breadbasket of America. They've messed with it so much as to grow faster, grow taller, grow thicker, make more money. It's nothing like it used to be, and then it makes you wonder what we did wrong. So I know where this came from. I know the farmer. I know the person that milled it. That person is Kim Van Warmer at the Plymouth Plantation Grist Mill. So this is 
is a flint corn. Flint corns are the kind of corn that ended up mostly in New England because they're very hard. Wearing a t-shirt that reads, where there's a mill, there's a way, Van Warmer gets ready to grind corn the pre-industrial way for visitors. Watching her and an assistant manipulate chunky antique wood and metal equipment is like stepping into a time machine. So now we're going, but we're really not grinding corn. I'm going to give it a little extra. A water wheel outside powers two massive circular grinding stones inside a reconstruction of the original mill that burned down in 1837. This small-scale process is a far cry from the modern behemoth mills that make most of this country's flour. Before 1900, there were more than 25,000 grist mills across the U.S. Advances in technology and transportation lured New England grain farmers and millers west. Now, Van Warmer says, an artisan movement is rebooting a local grain economy in the Northeast. It's something that you can trace, that not only can you know the farmer that grew your tomato, you can know the farmer that grew your wheat, or know the farmer that grew the malted barley that's in the beer that you're drinking. Van Warmer works with Rhode Island and Massachusetts farmers who raise indigenous maize that's labor-intensive and expensive to grow. She's not alone in believing the region needs more mills to convert corn and other grains for the rising ranks of bakers, brewers, and chefs fueling this revival. We also have a lot of activists who are working behind the scenes trying to create the market and get people educated. That's author Amy Halloran. She traces America's grain history to the current renaissance in her book, The New Breadbasket. She says grain has been slow to catch up to the larger local food movement. Processing it requires forgotten specialized skills and critical infrastructure lost after small mills shuttered in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was a part of our life to have a mill nearby. And now it's uncommon, but that is really changing. New micro-mills, kind of like micro-breweries, have cropped up in New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont to supply regional demand from bakers and chefs. Halloran is encouraged by the momentum, but says government incentives and wider consumer support would help get more grains in the ground. We are never going to grow all of our grain in the Northeast and New England, but there's a lot of energy to try to restore and be able to taste fresh flour and fresh malt again. Halloran's gateway taste was an oatmeal bar made with wheat grown and milled in New York State where she lives. One bite and she was hooked. She hopes more of us will consider what could be different next time we make a sandwich. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. We're going to leave you with a sound that's a bit more Nashville than New England. John Widgren is one of the most in-demand pedal steel guitarists in country music, and he lives in Connecticut. Here's an audio postcard from Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson. The one, two, three. My name is John Widgren. I play the pedal steel, and I love my job. Tim Kelly, and I'm playing the acoustic guitar. This is a modern pedal steel guitar. It's the most modern iteration of what we call the old Hawaiian guitars. Hawaiian music was based on being able to take a movable bar up and down across the strings. 
like this. The more modern instruments then have a series of levers on the underside that are attached to rods so that when I hit a pedal or a knee lever, what it does is it stretches the string. The first time I heard pedal steel that I noticed uh, was the great Buddy Emmons playing on a Judy Collins tune called Someday Soon. And hearing that tune and that music in that context hit my heart like an arrow. Here's the thing. The pedal steel, the way it moves, it emulates the human voice. To me, I think the sort of deeper connection to the music comes through its being related to the human voice. A lot of people sort of bemoan what is happening to the tradition of using pedal steel in country music, but I see a blossoming of pedal steel being used in other genres. Young players everywhere, and they are on fire about the instrument. I'm glad to be a part of it. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Patrick Scahill. Our music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. I'm John Dankowski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio. <laughs>